Section 19 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13. William's English Policy, 1070 to 1087, Part 2. Such were the institutions of the people over whom William had been elected king. William, it must be remembered, did not claim his title to the throne by conquest. The attitude assumed by him was that of the lawful claimant to the throne, who, finding himself unjustly ousted by the perjured usurper Harold, had appealed to the judgment of God on the battlefield of Hastings, and there asserted the rightfulness of his cause. It was under this pretext that he gained the moral support of Europe and the blessing of the Pope, and after the battle he had referred the matter to the Witan, who had freely elected him as king. On this election, primarily, he based his right. He styled himself the successor of Edward the Confessor, and the name of Harold was omitted as that of a usurper. He had, therefore, neither the opportunity nor the inclination entirely to overthrow the nationality of the country or to destroy its time-honored institutions, but in theory became as truly a national king as Canute. It was in this spirit that he devoted himself to the task which lay before him of adapting the institutions of his newly won country to those which he brought from Normandy and to the altered circumstances of the times and it is in this work that the political genius of William and his truly Norman powers of adaptation were forcibly illustrated. From the preceding sketch, the weakness and strength of the Anglo-Saxon institutions will be understood. Their strength lay clearly in their local and social aspect, in the development of the lower grades of constitutional life, in the healthy local self-government found in the organization of the Shire, the hundred, the township, and the borough, in the popular character of their justice and in their self-dependence, their quiet and peace-loving character. In all this they were strong, but in the higher ranges of constitutional life they failed. The connection between the local self-governing communities and the central government was feeble. The administrative machinery by which the king might maintain the superintendence and carry on the central government was inadequate and ill-arranged. The relation between the local courts of justice and that of the king, who held a general superintendence over them, and to whom lay the ultimate appeal, was ill-defined. This William clearly saw, and he acted accordingly. The local courts were preserved intact, and the English language was allowed there. The number of manorial courts was increased by royal grant, but no other change was made. No difference was made in the local administration of justice, except that the trial by combat was added to the compurgation and ordeal for the use of Normans. The privileges of towns were left untouched, and those of London confirmed by royal charter. The system of mutual responsibility was extended in the system of frank pledge, by which the police arrangements were carried out by sections of ten men mutually responsible for each other. The militia system was continued, and the Trinoda Necessitas maintained. So far, William acted as an English king and perpetuated national institutions. But in the relations between the central government and the king, 
many modifications were introduced. The Witangamote was continued indeed, but turned into a feudal court, the commune concilium of the Norman kings, in which the members sat as feudal lords. A sort of committee of this, the Curia Regis, was established, which besides its character as a council of deliberation and legislation, formed the court of ultimate appeal, in some cases a court of first instance, and kept the local courts in order. Of this court, the presiding officer was the justiciary, an officer of purely foreign origin. For the full development of his powers we must wait till the reign of Henry I, but under William he was generally the regent of the kingdom in the king's absence, and probably soon began to assume his later position of supreme judicial and financial officer of the realm. The government of the shires was entrusted to earls, the successors of the old aldermen. But William avoided the fault of Canute. He did not carve out England into great earldoms. He confined his earldoms to one shire, and was careful, with a few exceptions to be mentioned hereafter, to keep the earls in due subordination to himself, and to render them more entirely an official class. The sheriffs, too, were made more dependent on the king and became his representatives in all fiscal matters, thus binding the local courts and local organization to the central government and preventing undue independence from arising. These reforms did not indeed arrive at their perfect form till the reign of Henry I and Henry II, nor had William, a man of war, troubled as he was by continual disturbances, time fully to complete his schemes. But he introduced the germ of the future Anglo-Norman government, and by preserving what was strongest in the Anglo-Saxon system, and strengthening what was weak by new elements, by his stern will he welded the two into a compact whole with all the elements of stability. And to this day, these two elements lie side by side, each betraying their origin and attesting the political wisdom of William, the local organization emanating from the English people, the administrative and financial system centered round the Norman king. To the lowest classes, indeed, the Norman conquest was a boon. The Normans, unaccustomed to actual slavery, confused the lower classes in the common class of villains or servi. The latter probably represented the Anglo-Saxon thralls and the landless churls, and seemed to have held the position of landless laborers. The former were chiefly formed of those churls who before the conquest had failed to rise to the rank of thanes, and had fallen into a semi-servile class. The position of the villains seems to have been far better now than it became later. If they might not leave the land without the Lord's consent, they were at least safe in the possession of their homes. They had to till the soil of his domain, but had a remedy against the violence of their master. The service and villain alike might be manumitted by the church, and at a later date if they could escape to a town and live there as members of a guild for a year and a day, they were held to have earned their freedom. But to the higher and middle classes it was different. Although the Anglo-Saxons were still allowed to enjoy their time-honored institutions and customs, and the policy of William was conciliatory, their condition was not a happy one. Their laws and language, indeed, were not swept away by any formal legislative enactments, but in the hands of Norman officers the spirit of legal administration was changed, the English ceased to be the court language, 
and the country was, as we shall see, gradually feudalized. The chronicles do not complain of suppressed nationality, but are full of the legal and fiscal oppression. The king was so stark, and took of his subjects many marks of gold and more of silver. William, after the first submission of England, affected and probably intended to rule mildly and mercifully. But the constant rebellions which subsequently broke out brought on the sternness and indifference to suffering which stain his character. The whole country between Tees and Humber was reduced to a perfect waste, and for nine years was entirely untilled. The depopulation which went on is clearly seen from the records of the Doomsday Book. Thus Oxford in the Confessor's time had 721 houses, in Williams only 245. York under the former contained 1,607, under the latter only 967. The confiscations, at first confined to those who had actually fought at Hastings, rapidly increased, and at the end of the reign there were no Anglo-Saxon earls, only one Anglo-Saxon bishop, and a few abbots and great landowners remaining. The people saw their wealth and offices transferred to Norman barons and groaned under their cruelty and oppression. Their country became only a part, and that not the most important part of a Norman kingdom, and their interests were continually sacrificed to those of Normandy. Her king was more often abroad than in England, while in his absence the Normans ground down the people. In every way they suffered much, yet it was the happiest thing for England in the end. When we remember the want of combined action and political unity which marked the preceding history of England, when we remember the power of the two great families of Lefrick and Seward, and the independence of Northumbria, and the jealousy with which Edwin and Morcar looked upon the ascendancy of Harold, we must allow that had he succeeded quietly and transmitted his crown to his successors, he would have enjoyed only a partial supremacy over a large part of the country. His position was not unlike that of Hugh Capet, first king of France, and probably, as in France, the earls would long have maintained their independence. Continental feudalism, too, all the elements of which we have seen existed in England, would probably have arisen with its anarchy, isolation and class privileges, and the condition of England might soon have resembled that of France. Far better for her was it that she should be conquered and reduced to submission and unity, even by the cruel hands of Norman kings. Far better was it that she should suffer a temporary overthrow of her national being, for thus she gained what was wanting in her own political condition. The growth of feudalism was checked, and after a century or so of compression and pruning, which though severe was necessary for future growth, all that was valuable in the Anglo-Saxon institutions reasserted itself and became the primary basis of our later constitution. We should remember, too, that by the conquest, England was brought into far closer contact with the continent, and this, too, at an important epoch. This was clearly for the good of England. The Anglo-Saxon, as is well illustrated by the character of his historical literature, had no European sympathies, hardly any English imperial ones. His interest, his sympathies, were entirely local. 
he had no sense of a common brotherhood of men, a commonwealth of nations. He set little value on things removed from his own personal observation, and his ideas were thus essentially narrow and confined. By the Norman conquest, all this was changed. England, becoming as she did part of an Anglo-Norman kingdom, was forced to embrace wider sympathies, began to feel herself really a member of Europe, and thus lost that narrowness and exclusiveness which so clearly marks her earlier history. Lastly, the Anglo-Saxon character, institutions, and social life seem to have required some new infusion of blood, and this the Normans gave. The Anglo-Saxon character seems to have had all the characteristics of stability, but not of advance, of solidity, but not of sprightliness. It required the Norman element, deeply influenced as it was by the French character, to give the necessary life and vigor, and without the Normans, as it has been well said, England would have been mechanical, not artistic, brave, not chivalrous, the home of learning, not of thought. In no long time the two peoples began to amalgamate, and a healthy, strong, and vigorous people was the result, uniting the strength of the Norman and Anglo-Saxon characters, which soon began to multiply more rapidly than other European nations, and which now has spread to every part of the inhabited globe. In spite, then, of the temporary misery which England must have undergone, although we naturally lament over the fall of Harold, the king of the Anglo-Saxons, as a national loss, and over Hastings as a national defeat, we can but acknowledge that the Norman conquest was a necessary and beneficial experience in our history, from which, as far as we can see, the greatest benefits have flowed. The advantages which England gained by the Norman conquest will further appear from a review of the policy of William toward the Norman nobles. The Norman nobles had been induced to aid William in his invasion by promises of wealth and power, and these promises had now to be fulfilled. They had no reason to complain. The confiscated estates of the conquered were largely conferred upon them, and their manors were granted to them with exemption from the jurisdiction of the hundred court. They practically monopolized all the important offices of state. They also enjoyed the position of counselors of the king. So far William satisfied their claims. But they had been accustomed to a feudal form of government with its anarchy and independence, and many of them longed, no doubt, to have become great feudal lords in England. Thus William was brought face to face with the question, how far should he introduce continental feudalism into England? In examining his policy in this respect, it will be well to consider feudalism again under its twofold divisions. 1. A system of land tenure. 2. A system of government. To the feudal system of land tenure, William had been long accustomed, and to it there was no objection. Consequently, all the lands which were confiscated from the Anglo-Saxons were granted out to his Normans on feudal terms and became feudal manors, and the folkland was turned absolutely into crown property. The Anglo-Saxon landowners still held their lands by their old tenure, but owing to the repeated revolts, Few of these remained at the end of William's reign, and those few, following the now almost universal custom, either made terms with the king himself or with some neighboring lord, and consented to hold their lands as feudal vassals. 
Thus, by a gradual process, the feudal tenure of land became universal in England and was worked up into a system by the Norman lawyers. But with the government of the country, the case was different. William had seen the evil results of the continental system, the anarchy, the isolation, the weakening of the royal authority which it produced, and was determined to prevent this in England. Accordingly, in his grants to his Norman nobles, he refused to carve out principalities for his followers. He gave them manors scattered over England, and while allowing them the right of jurisdiction in their manners, he strictly limited their powers, in most cases by the appeal to the hundred court, in all by direct appeal to himself, and kept them in due subordination by his royal processes or circuits. The earls were only set over single shires, and the growth of independence thereby checked. The great lords were allowed no independent rights of coinage nor of making laws, all these matters being reserved to the king himself. Exceptions, indeed, were made. The four counties Palatine, Chester, under Hugh Lupus, Shrewsbury, under Roger Montgomery, Durham, and Kent were erected, in which the governors enjoyed rights very similar to those of the feudal barons abroad. Of these, the earldom of Chester was the most important, and may be taken as a type of the rest, though it enjoyed greater rights than any other. The Earl of Chester was lord of all the land in the shire except that in the hands of the bishop. He had a council of the barons in the palatinate, his own judicial courts, his own staff of judges, constables, steward, and other officers. Offenses were said to be done against his peace and not that of the king, and all acts were in his name. In fact, he was feudal sovereign of Cheshire as the king of England was in Normandy. So entirely did the Palatine jurisdiction stand apart from the rest of England that those of Chester and Durham, the only two which survived the conqueror's reign, were not represented in the national parliament till the reigns of Henry VIII and Charles II respectively, while that of Durham retained its independent courts until 1836. These counties palatine were so granted because they formed the outposts against danger from without, Shrewsbury and Chester against the Welsh, Durham against the Scots, and Kent against invasion from the continent. Here, great centralization and authority were required against surprise. But even here, the political foresight of the conqueror did not forsake him. Two of these, Durham and Kent, were granted to ecclesiastics, whereby they were prevented from becoming hereditary, and that of Kent was not revived after the fall of Odo of Bayeux. Lastly, in 1086, taking advantage of a threatened invasion from Norway, William made every landowner in England take an oath of homage to him immediately, instead of demanding it only of his tenants-in-chief, who in their turn might exact it from their own tenants. By this act he destroyed the essence of feudal government, which consisted in the gradation of ranks one beneath the other, the lowest holding of that immediately above and responsible to that alone. The tenants-in-chief, or those who held of the king himself, being alone responsible to him. Thus, while elsewhere a vassal was bound to follow his immediate lord, even when rebelling against the king, and could not be punished for so doing, in England, everyone who took arms against the king was held guilty of treason. In this policy, William was largely aided by the insular position of England, 
and by the comparatively small extent of the kingdom. By the former, the factious nobles were prevented from speedily gaining assistance against their king as they did abroad. By the latter, centralization of government was rendered easy, and the centrifugal tendencies of the times checked. Thus, in the government of England, the balance of power lay clearly on the side of the king, while in France this was destroyed in favor of the baronage. But the French view is taken by the Norman barons, and after William had crushed out the local resistance of the Saxons, he had to meet with the rebellions of his feudal vassals in Normandy and England. The results of the policy of William were among the most important facts of early English history, and we may fairly say that it is to William in no little degree that we are indebted for our later constitutional government. Not that he in any way anticipated or could have anticipated it, nor that had he done so he would have welcomed the prospect, but he was in this matter what most men are after all, the servants of a master they cannot resist. It would seem that every nation in the course of its development must pass through a stage, a period of absolutism, more or less declared. Such a schooling is necessary to break down the independence and privileges of the nobility, to fuse races and classes together, and to give them common interests and common sympathies for which they in turn may struggle against the sovereign's will. This schooling England underwent under the stern rule of her Anglo-Norman kings, while France, sacrificed as she was to the anarchy of feudalism, put off her schooling till late, when it became doubly oppressive, in fact a tyranny. Again, society must first develop a strong, healthy legal system before she can advance to anything like real and practical freedom. Without such a system to rally round, liberty becomes anarchy, equality a contradiction in terms, since equality before the law is the only one that can exist, and without law, equality is sacrificed to the might of the strongest. This, again, the strong rule of the Anglo-Norman kings gave to England, whereas in France it did not grow up till late, then only to add still further links to the chain of absolute and irresponsible despotism. End of section 19